15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Space Nuts podcast. And my name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me for episode 193 is astronomer in charge, Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. I did used to be the astronomer in charge. That was my. I thought I said astronomer at large. Well, it's quite all right. No, it's Freudian Freudian slip. It's very, and of course. um, uh, that's why I became the astronomer at large, because you only had to change four letters on the office door to make it from <laughs> one to the other. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the, the organi- and, and that sort of harps on something we talked about a while ago where your organisation has changed names about two or three times but <laughs> didn't change the lettering, so didn't change the logo. Exactly. Same logo since 1991. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's amazing. Uh, dear. Very good. Now, um, Fred, have you got enough toilet paper at your place is my big question. Uh, <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to ask. Um, we haven't yet started tearing pages out of the Astrophysical Journal to use in the bathroom. Did you, did you uh, hear about the Northern Territory News, uh, the newspaper in Darwin? They, they, published uh, an, they published an edition last week with several blank pages for people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I yeah. think this whole thing is just insanity at the highest level. There's so it many is. people panicking over nothing. It's, you uh, might it's want to explain the you might want to explain the toilet paper issue, oh, though, to us. I think most people are aware, but if you're not aware, I don't know where you've been, but uh, there's been a panic buy-up of toilet paper in Australia, and all the supermarket shelves are empty. Every supermarket where I live has got no toilet paper because people have been panic buying because the Prime Minister said, stock up because you might have to be isolated for a couple of weeks because of the coronavirus. And everyone's <laughs> freaking out about it. Well, not everyone. I mean, we don't care, but... A lot of people are freaking out about it. But I, I, I'm going to bring some astronomy into this, Fred. Oh, good. I, I wondered where it was going. <laughs> I think this is the 2020 version of a caveman seeing an eclipse and thinking the world's going to end. Oh, probably. That's yes, what that's this is. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You know, I, I think people need to take a long, hard look at themselves and give themselves an uppercut, to use an Australian term, and just get on with it. This is, this is, this is ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. The, 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 the good news is that um, people, those particular people will, you know, they'll never need to go and buy another toilet roll again. Not for eternity. <laughs> they'll, get, good luck. they'll get buried with the stuff. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah. I'm suggesting that if they're going to, you know, panic buy toilet paper, get some baked beans and some long life milk so that when you eat it, it'll taste a bit better. <laughs> Now, let's get down to business. Today on Space Nuts, we're going to uh, look at something that scientists have discovered for the first time, and that is that space-time is dragging. Not everywhere, but they've found that it is dragging in one particular place, which sounds unusual. And what does what does dragging actually mean? Uh, we're also going to look at a couple of uh, clever students um, uh, in terms of a name for the next Martian rover. This follows on from Sojourner, which I think is a great name, Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity. So what are they calling the next one? We will tell you. And a 17-year-old intern at NASA, day three on the job, has found a planet six times uh, or nearly seven times larger than Earth. I mean, 
How lucky is that? Uh, those are some of the things we'll look at today on Space Nuts with Fred Watson. Let's uh, start off, Fred, with um, uh, the fact that space time is dragging. What What is it dragging and why? Uh, it <laughs> It's a phenomenon to do with the theory of general relativity, or rather the general theory of relativity, which, of course, was produced by Albert Einstein in 1915. Uh, not long after that, I think about three years later, uh, well, let me just step back a minute. That theory, of course, says that as soon as you put matter into space-time, and space-time's really just space, but with a fancy name. Uh, as soon as you put matter into it, because of course time's part of it as well, um, uh, as soon as you put matter into space-time, it, it is distorted. And that distortion is what we feel as gravity. Uh, and that in itself is pretty hard to get your head around. Space-time bends because matter's there. Mm. But it was about, uh, I think, three years later that two Austrian scientists uh, by the name of Josef Lenzer Und Hans Thiering, um, they worked out that uh, you would get a phenomenon um, if you have a, 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 a massive object rotating. You get a phenomenon which is almost a swirling of the space-time around the object. It's called frame-dragging. <clears throat> um, and So as the, uh, the Earth does it, as the Earth turns... It's not only distorting the space that's hold and holding us on with the, the force of gravity, but to a much less, a much lesser degree, it's also dragging the, the surrounding space-time with it. Now, you're looking baffled, Andrew. No, it's just <laughs> that lack of sleep because I'm worried about where I'm going to get a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> well, just watch out. Don't drag your space-time with it when you, when you find it. Um, we usually anglicise Yosef uh, uh, and Hans's names to the lens theoring precession or lens theoring effect. Okay, um, that's um, how most people speak of it, even though they wouldn't have called themselves that. Uh, so, uh, okay, it has been tested. This theory. It was, um, as I said, I think it was 1918 when it was uh, when it was produced. Um, but the, uh, the the first test of it was done in the early 2000s. A spacecraft called Gravity Probe B was launched into orbit around the Earth by NASA in collaboration, I think, with Stanford University, um, which carried on board very, very sensitive gyroscopes. And by using those, uh, the... Uh, physicists running the, the experiment could detect the frame dragging of the Earth itself. So it, it's all about subtle motions in the in the uh, the satellite, and that tells you that yes, you have proved because there's nothing else that would give rise to those subtle motions. You've proved that frame dragging is true, uh, and but it's only been detected around the Earth. So now cut to the chase, uh, because uh, for the first time. Uh, it has now been detected in an astronomical object. Uh, and this is a really nice story because it, it pulls together, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental physics of frame dragging with some of the, the big adventures that here, here in Australia we are taking part in, uh, particularly in terms of radio astronomy. The story goes back 20 years, actually, Andrew, mm. uh, to the Parks Radio Observatory, 
in New South Wales, the very same state that we are both in at the moment. I'm just a one, um, hour, one hour drive from that telescope. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You are indeed. Exactly. It's just down the road for you. Yeah. Uh, very, very well-known uh, telescope, the Big Dish, it's usually called. And very, uh, very distracting when you're driving along the highway because you, you just want to look at it. But you can't no. stop looking at it. I know. Can't, can't <laughs> help yourself. I don't have that problem because usually when I go down there, that's where I'm going. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I just watch it getting bigger as you get nearer to it. Um, 20 years ago, uh, the Parkes Radio Telescope discovered... Uh, a, a white dwarf pulsar binary system. Um, I'll tell you its name, and then we can get that out of the way. It is actually. I've got to magnify the screen so I can read it. <laughs> <laughs> it oh, you're showing PSR, your age now, Fred. You're showing your age. Yeah. <laughs> PSR J double one four one minus six five four five. There you are. Mm. Uh, Put that in your diary. It's that's I've that's forgotten it already. <laughs> uh, as have I. Uh, it is a white dwarf pulsar binary system. What does that mean? It means you've got a white dwarf star, which is um, a, an object the size of the Earth, but with the mass of a star in it, uh, made of electrons all crushed together. Uh, or the electrons are, are the only thing that hold that hold the thing that stop the thing from collapsing. So um, that is a massive object. Uh, around it is this pulsar, which is another massive object, a, a neutron star. Uh, the, the two are in mutual orbits. And the, uh, the, so, so the telescope discovered that phenomenon, the, the, the binary system. So the pulsar itself is beaming out radiation from its poles. Pulsars, as you know, because you and I have spoken about this before, uh, effectively are extremely accurate clocks. They, they basically... Be blip out radio radiation as they uh, rotate. That's what the Parkes dish detected. <clears throat> and um, they're, they're, the precision with which they do that is better than atomic clocks. They, they are so regular. Um, the, just as one smaller piece of information in this, the pulsar itself orbits the white dwarf every 4.8 hours. So it's, you know, it's, it's a system. Around, eh? It's whizzing round, that's right. Um, now, what has happened over the last 20 years is that astronomers have been able to use this timing phenomenon, the regular timing of the pulsar, to measure the pulsar's position in respect to the white dwarf. Uh, because essentially, time, accurate time, means accurate distance in terms of uh, measuring you know, the, where, where the pulsar is. And it's that measured over 20 years that has demonstrated that this frame dragging phenomenon is taking place out there uh, at PSR, whatever it was, uh, J1141 minus 6545. So what, what, what the scientists, and there's a group of scientists from uh, many different institutions, including uh, institutions in Germany, the Square Kilometer Array Organization, that is uh, the headquarters of this great new telescope that we're planning, the Square Kilometre Array, in, in Western Australia and in South Africa. Uh, the headquarters are in Manchester, uh, or near Manchester, at the Jodrell Bank Radio Observatory. One of the scientists involved with this work uh, comes from that organisation. Uh, so that means uh, he is relatively closely connected with Australia because Australia is one of the host nations. Uh, so, and, and I should just mention that the Parkes Dish, uh, plus another telescope called the Malonglo Observatory Synthesis Telescope, again here in Australia, uh, which has been involved with this work, they are both 
pathfinder telescopes for the square kilometre array. So very important in in you know this this large scale project that is currently uh, under construction or uh, soon will be under construction. Um, that's getting in the plug for SKA, but mm. the, the research itself, as I said, involves scientists from Germany, Australia, New Zealand, and actually Denmark too. Um, and what they've done is they've um, looked at the way these pulsar signals have changed over the 20 years, and they find a change in the pulsar's orbit, which amounts to 150 kilometres. Uh, and we're now talking about something that's 10,000 light years away, Andrew. Yes. So being able to measure a, a change in orbit of 150 kilometres uh, at that distance is an astonishing accomplishment. Mm. But it turns out that that change is exactly what you would expect from frame dragging by the white dwarf itself. And that's the only thing that can account for it. So it is the first time that we've demonstrated this swirling of space actually beyond the earth uh, beyond the earth's vicinity and it's an important um, you know a really important result which is rightly being celebrated all over the science media um, astronomers detect distant space-time dragging for the first time so the, the, the i guess the the point of this is the massive um or the, the mass of this this event rather than you know you we talked about it, how earth does it but we're talking about something on a much larger scale it, it, that's right. Yes. Uh, well, the white dwarf itself, whilst it's probably not much bigger than the Earth, its 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 mass is much larger. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, well, you're talking about um, you know you are talking about something happening on a on a larger scale. Mm. Um, I confess that um, I am not an expert on the lens steering effect, uh, but it is very interesting stuff. Uh, and when you read up about it, it's quite inspiring that you know. All those years ago, these guys worked out that space-time is being dragged around by the Earth. And if you like me and you don't want to read anything about it, there's a fabulous animation on the yes, skatelescope.org website where you can see um, in about 1 minute and 20 seconds what they've learned over 20 years. It shows you how the uh, effect works. It's very, very good. Uh, uh, so. I, might give a, I might give a call out to the, the person who put that, uh, animation together, Mark Myers, who's at Swinburne University, uh, because I was in touch with him yesterday. I'm using one of his um, graphics in a newsletter that I prepare, and uh, I asked him if that was all right. He said uh, he was delighted to let us use it, and uh, I, I absolutely agree with you, Andrew. His animation, uh, which is on that website, the skatelescope.org website, is terrific. Yes, indeed. All right. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Let's take a break from the show and hear a word or two from our sponsor, Grammarly. Now, I have to say I'm a big fan of Grammarly uh, because I've been using it for a few years now. Very helpful for authors, but uh, also really good for everyday life. They've saved me on a few occasions. Uh, particularly with spelling, but also with a few issues that uh, didn't quite make sense. Uh, it's built by linguists and language lovers, and uh, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors, so you don't have to do it yourself, word by word, day by day. <laughs> you can uh, easily copy and paste any English text into Grammarly's online text editor, or just install uh, Grammarly's free browser extension for Chrome, Safari, Firefox, and quite a few others. Grammarly's algorithms flag potential issues in the text and suggest context-specific corrections for grammar, spelling, and vocabulary. 
Uh, Grammarly explains the reasoning behind each correction so you can make an informed decision about whether and how to correct an issue. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anything else you write on the web. Uh, for you, the listener of Space Nuts, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. So if you'd like to download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash space nuts. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash space nuts to download Grammarly for free and let them know you came from us. Uh, I'll include the link in the show notes as well. And now back to Space Nuts. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, just uh, another shout out to our patrons who support our podcast with dollars and cents. We uh, thank you again for doing that. If you would like to become a patron or just look into the possibility, uh, you can go to our Patreon website, patreon.com slash space nuts. All the information's there. If you would like to contribute to the program, you can set your own limit. Uh, but it's not mandatory. We're not asking you to do it um, as as a condition of listening to the podcast. If you want to go on listening to it uh, as you are, that is fine too. But uh, anybody who contributes uh, does get the benefit of bonus content on the Patreon website. Uh, they also get the commercial free edition of the podcast uh, ahead of time. So um, something to consider anyway. Um, now, oh, by the way, Fred, um, my uh, new book, um, shameless plug coming up, uh, is now available for pre-order as an e-book. Ooh. So um, have a look Ooh. for that on the Amazon website. So um, that's that's pretty exciting. I'm very, very pleased with how it's all turned out. Uh, someone actually messaged me the other day and said, I've ordered it, better be good. <laughs> uh, you've got to remind us of the title, Andrew. It's called uh, The Tyrannian Enigma. The That's Tyrannian the Enigma. I'm starting. I, first time I wrote that down and read it out, I, my tongue tripped over it, and I thought, "No, this is <laughs> this is too hard." But I'm getting used to it now. Very good. I've developed yeah. a couple of synapses in my brain that have got my mouth around the Tyrannian Enigma. <laughs> no, I tripped over it. But um, yeah, have a look for it. Uh, the official release date of the ebook and the paperback will be April 15. And um, you know, I've, I've, a few people have asked if I could turn it into an audio book as well. So I'll look into that. I, I, it, it's just so time consuming to create an audio book. Sure is, uh, yeah. Not so much the the reading and recording of, but the editing. Oh my gosh, that's a nightmare. Uh, having well, you did that once, for um, all uh, I see is mud. Yeah, story. yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a World War One story about my grandfather in the Great War, but that that started as an audio book so that was i sort of flipped the egg on that i did the audio book and then wrote uh, then made the paperback <laughs> but these last two i've done the other way around or haven't done the other way around but um i'll, I'll look into it i'll just it's got to be feasible and that that sort of becomes the question but um we'll see how the demand goes but yeah have a look for it um uh, hugh tells me he's going to put it on our um bytes.com slash space nuts page so you might be able to pre-order through there i haven't checked uh now let's get down to a couple of things involving students fred these are um exciting stories i particularly like this one which involves the naming of the next mars rover now we've uh, heard of sojourner and spirit and opportunity and curiosity 
uh, some of which have gone above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, but um, that, they aren't the last rovers. There will be future rovers, and uh, it looks like some students have got involved in the naming of the next one. Well, that's right. It was, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a, I think this is what NASA does normally with its rovers. Uh, it, it puts out um, a competition uh, to... Uh, actually to school students uh, and says, suggest names for our next rover. And of course, the next rover is what's been called until now Mars 2020. Um, it will be launched uh, July or August this year. I think its uh, landing date on Mars is the 18th of February next year. So um, just uh, just under a year away. Mm. Um, until now, called Mars 2020. So during the closing months of last year, NASA put out the invitation uh, to school students. I think it was uh, school students of all ages, from kindy to year 12, uh, and uh, invited them to submit suggestions for the uh, for the um, uh, name of the of the rover, and they received. Uh, 28,000 submissions. I know, that's amazing. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? That yeah. was uh, back in August, at uh, the end of August last year, when they put the invitation out. Um, and uh, But fortunately, uh, it wasn't just one person who had to read all 28,000, because these were essays uh, saying why it should be a particular name. They had 4,700 volunteer judges. They were educators, uh, professionals in the space field and space enthusiasts. And they eventually got down to 155 semi-finalists and then nine finalists. And I think, I can't remember, but I think you and I talked about this last year. Yes. Because there was a list of, uh, of very elegant, they were all great names, actually, for, uh, for a rover. Robert. Um, so, uh, and then they put that out for public voting. And in fact, it was worldwide and there were many submissions came from Australia. They received a total of 770,000 votes. Wow. Uh, to, 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 you know, to chew through, to work out what uh, the final name should be. And eventually uh, they got one answer. And it and came. Drum, hang on, drum roll. Drum roll. Uh, it, it came from uh, a youngster by the name of Alex Mather, uh, who's at a school, I've forgotten, I think he's in Virginia. I can check that in a minute. Uh, but he, and here's the drum roll, he was the person who suggested the name Perseverance, which Great is name. the name of that... the new spacecraft. Yeah, right? yeah. That is a fabulous name for it because it, it does actually tell a story behind all the missions to Mars over the years and all the work that's gone into it. They just, you know, uh, all the successes and the failures and the, and the near misses, it is perseverance that, that yeah, keeps and them going. That's right. Um, I mean, this, this spacecraft as well could be, uh, it could be the one that discovers life on Mars. Yes. Uh, because that's what it's, <clears throat> you know, what the aim is. It's um, unlike Curiosity, whose mission was to discover whether Mars was 
ever habitable, which it did within about the first fortnight of its presence on the planet. Mm. Um, uh, Perseverance is looking for evidence of past or present life um, with many different instruments that will uh, will do that. Uh, And I, I suspect Perseverance might be the characteristic that it needs more than anything else, it will probably be quite a long mission. Uh, It's unlikely that, you know, as soon as it drops down, it's going to find evidence of uh, Martian microbes. One would expect that it might have to move around on the surface a bit, but it will do that. Yeah, great. Only slightly pipped uh, the number two, which was, do I have to go to Mars? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the one. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that uh, they got 28,000 submissions for the name. It reminds me of an author, a children's author in Sri Lanka last week, who got 20,000 submissions for the ending of her latest book. Okay. And they came out and they're going to publish it with 1,250 endings, which is a which is a uh, Guinness World Record. And I, I think those sorts of responses really show where you stand in the world. So when I asked for a title for my book, I got five. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. <laughs> more, than, more than the number of people who read my book. Um, that, um, that, the, the bottom line here is congratulations to young Ale- Alexander Mather. Yes. Um, he is... Uh, a year, sorry, a grade seven student. Now, I, I'm guessing that that means he's about 13 yeah. uh, or thereabouts. Um, and he's uh, he put in put together a really uh, remarkable, um, you know, remarkable uh, uh, entry. Um, he said some very, very, uh, very nice comments about the the competition and his his uh, his um, entry to it. He says um, this is actually in the NASA press release. He says this was a chance to help the agency that put humans on the moon, and we'll soon do it again. This Mars rover will help pave the way for human presence there, and I wanted to try and help in any way I could. Refusal of the challenge was not an option. Ah, lovely. <laughs> That is great. That's great yeah. stuff, isn't it? Good on him. Okay, yeah. so watch out for Perseverance, uh, which should hit the Martian surface uh, in a little under a year. Uh, still on students doing great things, uh, this, is, this is a fabulous story about a 17-year-old who's doing an internship at NASA and has found a planet <laughs> on day yeah. three. Day three, that's right. <clears throat> it is. It's great stuff. Um, so uh, this is a young man called uh, Wolf Kukia. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, he scored a two-month internship with NASA. Uh, so during last northern summer, he was at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt in Maryland. And um, what, what he was doing uh, on day three, I think he probably started off doing this, he was trawling through data from... TESS. Uh, So TESS is a NASA spacecraft. It is currently operational, doing a great job. The name is an acronym for Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. So it's actually looking for the dimming of the light of of stars as planets pass in front of them. Uh, And unlike Kepler, which only looked at a small uh, area of the sky to do the same job, um, Kepler now now effectively defunct. Uh, Tess actually looks at the whole sky, uh, so it's a it's a uh, the word survey in its name is very important because it actually has a chance to look at the entire sky. So he was looking through the data. Actually, there's a, a nice quote again from um, from Wolf. He says, "I was looking through the data 
for everything the volunteers had flagged as an eclipsing binary. That means uh, two stars orbiting around a common centre of mass. One passes in front of the other as seen from the Earth, and so you get what we call an eclipse. Mm. So they're well-known stars. They've been well-known for, for a, more than a century. He was looking uh, through everything volunteers had flagged as an eclipsing binary, a system where two stars circle around each other and, from our view, eclipse each other every orbit. About three days into my internship, I saw a signal from a system called TOI 1338. At first, I thought it was a stellar eclipse, but the timing was wrong. It turned out to be a planet. Uh, I noticed a dip or a transit from the TOI 1338 system, and that was the first signal of the planet. First saw the initial dip and thought, oh, that looked cool. But when I, then when I looked at the full data from the telescope at that start, I and my mentor also noticed three different dips in the system. So great stuff and yeah. very well, very well spotted. And this T is a big one too. In, yeah, in that's right. It is. Planets, I suppose. It's, it's between the, um, you know, it's somewhere between the size of Neptune and Saturn, uh, rather larger than Uranus, uh, about seven times larger than the Earth. It's in the constellation of Pictor. And it's about 1,300 light years away. Um, the, is, it, is it a gas giant or a rocky planet? Probably. Probably, probably a, gas a gas giant. giant. Mm. Yeah. The, the, the name, uh, TOI-1338, TOI is an acronym for TESS Object of Interest. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, um, it's one that's floating around a lot these days with, uh, with a number of, attached to it. So, of course... Um, because of the convention, uh, that planet that uh, Wolf has discovered is now called TOI 1338b, because the B signifies it is the first discovered planet around the star. Excellent. All right. Great um, stuff. Yeah, good, good stuff involving students um, doing wonderful things. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Roger, your lives are here also. Space Nuts. And a big hello to all our social media followers that um, contribute via our Facebook page. If you're not following us on Facebook, uh, maybe have a look if you're a Facebook user, of course. Uh, you can also join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. That's a chance for you to talk to each other and help each other out with astronomy questions. And it's going gangbusters. People are really uh, enjoying finding each other. And um, uh, the, you know, the similarity in interest is, uh, is rather fascinating. So uh, I occasionally occasionally poke my head in there, but it's, it's actually for you, the Space Nuts podcast group, so uh, you might want to take advantage of that. Uh, and, of course, YouTube, uh, the numbers continue to grow, so if you'd like to subscribe to the Space Nuts YouTube channel, you can do that too. Now, uh, Fred, uh, we have a couple of questions. I didn't uh, preview these because I forgot, but uh, we, we are going to tackle a couple of questions, and then we're going to do um, a little bit of homework or go back to something we talked about a couple of weeks ago just to finish it off which was the Roche limit, which, which actually came about as a result of a question. But our first question today comes from Andrew Mitchell. I think Andrew's been in touch with us before. Dear Fred and Andrew, all this recent talk about black holes has been fascinating and the last instalment got me thinking. According to Einstein's equations, black holes are supposed to have... Uh, Infin uh, ha ha supposed to be infinitely small, infinitely dense singularities at their centre. If that's the case, then how do uh, two actually merge into one black hole? Shouldn't they just keep orbiting each other, getting closer forever? Or is the fact that black holes do merge actually evidence that singularities have size, perhaps a sphere with a diameter of one 
plank length. Uh, your regular plugs and YouTube channel have been paying off. I just became subscriber number 993. So, you know, we're a bit overdue getting your question done, Andrew. Thanks for joining us on YouTube, though. Still loving the show. Um, please keep up the mind-blowing stories. Thank you, Andrew. Um, black holes. Gee, we don't talk about them very often. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, it's an interesting question because we talk about how the, the black hole itself is quite small when you compare it to the event horizon or the, or the you know, what's going on around it. Um, but, yeah, two merging black holes, do they actually merge and how is it so? It's a really good question. Um, it's, uh, you know, the... the, the the whole black hole thing is hard to get your head around. Yep. <laughs> Whether you're a physicist or an astronomer or somebody fighting over toilet rolls in the, in the aisle <laughs> of the supermarket. Well, that involves a black hole too, doesn't it? So, I'm sure it does, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they are very, very hard uh, objects to understand. Uh, and Andrew's question is, is really well made. Um, how do two black holes merge into one? Um, I, I don't think there is any need for them to keep orbiting around each other if they are of infinitely small size. I do get his point that if you've got something that's infinitely small uh, and you put something else that's infinitely small next to it, they're never going to they're never going to touch because they're uh, because the dimensions are infinitely small. But in fact, as as Andrew says, they do merge. We have evidence of that uh, from the gravitational wave observations that have been made um, over the past uh, two or three years. Mm. Um, and there is uh, th there is this phenomenon um, called the ring down, which is the the sort of aftermath of the merging. Now I don't know enough about black hole physics to understand specifically what the mechanism of the ring down is, but I suspect that is where the evidence comes that you actually have now merged black holes. In fact, we know we know the evidence is there um, because you wind up with a black hole whose mass is actually usually slightly less than the sum of the masses of the two black holes that have merged. And the, and the excess has gone into creating the gravitational waves. It's mass into energy. Uh, but um, Andrew goes on to make an interesting point. He says, or, do the sing or is the fact that black holes do merge actually evidence that singularities have a size, perhaps a sphere with a diameter of one Planck length? Mm. Now, um, introducing the Planck length is a really neat way of sidestepping the idea of an infinitesimally small object because the, the Planck length is defined as being the smallest distance, and it, it's got a, it does have a proper physical definition. In fact, it's actually the distance that light travels in one unit of Planck time. Uh, so that raises the question, well, what's Planck time? Um, it, it, let me just summarise, though, and this is coming directly off Wikipedia. The Planck length can be defined, uh, sorry, uh, from, yeah, let me read it. The Planck length can be defined from three fundamental physical constants, the speed of light in a vacuum, the Planck constant, that's something um, which physicists are very familiar with, and the gravitational constant. It's the smallest distance about which current experimentally cor corroborated models of physics can make meaningful statements. 
So what it says is, and I'll go on, at such small distances, the conventional laws of macrophysics no longer apply. And even relativistic physics requires special treatment. It, and the bottom line is that a Planck length below that, all bets are off. Okay. We really don't understand what is happening to the physics. And maybe Andrew's point is well made that, uh, you know, a, a Planck length a black hole is actually what you have at the centre of uh, uh, constituting a black hole system. Um, I need to talk to my uh, expert friends about this because um, at this level of technicality, uh, my knowledge is not specialist, but I do know people whose knowledge is far better than mine. And next time I run into them, uh, I'm going to ask them exactly about these questions and hopefully feedback to Space Nuts and to Andrew and his um, fellow listeners. OK, so the question remains open, Andrew. It but does. Yeah, I think we'll give you a definite maybe. Maybe it's the answer. <laughs> Yes, all right. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the question. Let's move on to a question from Alf Peterson in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, Alf, I've got some news from you, which you may or may not be aware of, but uh, a young lady named Julia Engstrom, a professional golfer from Sweden, just won the New South Wales Women's Open, which we hosted here in Dubbo a couple of weeks ago. Oh, great. I, I, because our course was closed to play for members, we, um, we, uh, we got to go out there and watch these young ladies go around. It was a European tour event. Uh, she won not only her share of the prize money but a two-year exemption on the European tour. She's 18 years old. And she swings it like a champion. I mean, she was hitting it 260 to 280 metres, wailing it past me. And she's just a slip of a kid, but a remarkable player and someone to watch out for in the future if you're a golfer. Julia Engstrom is her name. So there you go, Alf. A little bit of... I can feel his pride swelling now. Um, <laughs> Now, he says, hello, uh, Andrew and Fred. Uh, what a fantastic community you've started, and it's a global one too. I've been a faithful listener of your pods now for a year and enjoy them very much. Never imagined Thursdays could be that exciting. I'd usually say something derogatory, but I'm feeling good today. Um, <laughs> don't know if this question might be of interest to the show. Is there any chance that a... It's a black hole question, by the way, Fred. Is there yep. any chance that a black hole might not exist in its uh, inside its event horizon? After all, black holes are claimed to be singularities, i.e. infinitesimal in size. In practical terms, nothing, right? Uh, if so... Could an event horizon act as a sort of a delayed postal service, never informing anyone outside what has happened? So like Australia Post, really. Um, would, no, they're great. Actually, uh, there's another piece of news. Dubbo Post Office here in town got Post Office of the Year. Oh, fabulous. That's great news. About a month ago. So we're doing all right here, aren't we? Yeah, uh, you're doing well in Dubbo. Back to the questions. Would physics allow matter still to be pulled into the vent, event, uh, into the horizon, even if the black hole was gone? Uh, great question, Ulf. And um, in, in a sense, the, um, the, uh, he's right about the event horizon acting as a delayed postal service because... Um, it, it, it stops the transfer of information. We do know that uh, black holes can evaporate courtesy of, of Hawking radiation, but uh, basically, and, and that involves a transfer of information, we know that, but it's very, very slow. So the, the, the event horizon does shield the black hole from the outside world, if I can put it that way. But um, in, in terms of whether the black hole itself exists, 
it, it's kind of the other way around. The only way the event horizon can exist is, is if there is a black hole at the center. Uh, in other words, this infinitesimally small singularity, essentially distorting space-time to the extent that you've got this shield around it, this black hole. The black hole, uh, sorry, the, the black hole event horizon. The event horizon in some ways is an illusion, Andrew, because it's um, it's just the point of no return. It's the, the thing that won't let light out. And it certainly is black. We've seen that from the, the event horizon image mm. uh, that was released last year. But uh, without the black hole, the event horizon doesn't exist. So... Uh, it it has to there has to be this singularity at the middle with all its complicated uh, infinitesimally small Planck length dimensions that we've just been discovered discussing. Um, yeah, great question though, and thank you very much. And yes, Sweden rocks. I was there not very long ago. And as Monty Python says, nothing can come from nothing. Uh, <laughs> it can't be <Exactly>. nothing. <laughs> Yes, yes. Mm. Thanks, Alf. Appreciate the question. Uh, one more thing before we fi finish up, Fred, and this is yep. um, a little bit of um, an add-on from a question about the Roche limit a couple of weeks ago. We were trying to figure out the Roche limit between the Earth and the Moon, and as you explained, the Roche limit is the point where uh, gravity will destroy one of the objects involved in the um, uh, in the uh, situation. So um, you could probably explain it better than I just did, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, basically, we were trying to figure out how close the moon could get to the Earth before it was obliterated. Yeah, and, and, and it's, you know, life on Earth would probably be obliterated too. Well, that's right. It would be a tricky situation for all of us. But it is. It's much less than I thought it would be, uh, Andrew. It's um, the Roche limit for the moon is nine thousand four hundred ninety-two kilometers, and I think that's from the centre of the Earth. So it's actually three thousand one hundred and fourteen kilometers above the surface. Imagine the moon three thousand kilometers above the surface. Oh, Whoa! Wouldn't it look amazing? It would look pretty amazing. That's right. Just for a um, few moments until we all die of fire. Oil died. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. We'd have plenty of toilet paper. No, oh, we would. We'd be yes, all right. Yes. So three. Uh, so nine thousand. Yeah, nine thousand four hundred ninety-two kilometers That's from the centre of the Earth, close yep. as it could get before it was destroyed by our gravity, and we would go down with the ship. Absolutely. Yeah, in a nutshell. All right. Now we've got that sorted out. Uh, thank you, Fred, so much. It's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you too, Andrew, and we'll speak again soon, I hope. We will indeed, and, and thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for your contributions. Keep them coming. We love to hear from you, whether it's on social media or via our website where you can send us emails. Uh, we have a little contact form there so you can send us questions. And uh, to the patrons, there'll be some bonus material coming up real soon. Uh, other than that, thank you, and we'll see you again next time on another edition of the Space Nuts Podcast. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>